be as gone as a wild goose in winter Then you'll understand, you'll man meditate on This yes. is hell. Okie dokie. Yeah, it was uh, quite a weekend in uh, media. Kentucky Derby was fixed. Let's see what else happened. Oh, yeah. Russia is having Victory Day, except for CNN is referring to it as May Day. And uh, the Chiron I saw last night was Russia will today be unleashing their quote-unquote doomsday bomber. And boy, there's a lot of news that ain't right on the news. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. We stream live every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 10 a.m. U.S. Central Time and our podcast shortly after at the same place. Thisishell.com, all from our studio directly upstairs from a pool table in a bar. Our broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell happens Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. This is Hell. Also airs abbreviated versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, twice every week on Lumpen Radio on Chicago's South Side, and thrice weekly on the UK-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host of this is hell chuck mertz starting off this week's show will be our producer alexander jerry in my absence while being out sick for the past couple of months since early march alex as well as producers Lindsay gory dan hill and sebastian whooper have been hosting the show playing hand-picked class classic interviews which they have chosen from our vast archives of nearly 26 years, and they've been doing whatever the hell else they felt like talking about here on This Is Hell over the last couple of months. So thanks to all of them for their contributions. For instance, last week, Sebastian shared some background on reproductive rights in the United States and uh, his take on the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So again, thanks to Alex, Dan, Lindsay, and Sebastian for covering while I've been out due to health issues. And thanks to Jeff Dorchin for contributing all new moments of truth and to Ronaldo Magaldi for continuing this week in rotten history. Jeff and Ronaldo, we appreciate all your work in keeping This Is Hell lively during my brush with death. Alex, which classic hand-picked interview will you be playing in a few short minutes? Both founders, RIP to both, Glenn Ford and Bruce Dixon, uh, the people I've responded to like the strongest i think in our time on this as hell i was like gutted when both those dudes died uh and i'm playing back-to-back interviews uh one right after the election of obama another one right after the election of trump uh both with people from black agenda report who uh i always trusted always feel good about yeah i always feel good about the stuff i read there i really like danny haifang's work as well all the people who do uh, writing over at Black Agenda Report, and we really appreciate their support. That is the organization that has given us the most support over the year, years, and uh, thank you very much for 20-plus years of support from Black Agenda Report. Who knew? I most recently spoke with Alex during our Friday, February, or May 6th, <laughs> Patreon podcast, which is available to supporters of This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. 
During our Patreon podcast, our subscribers get a new monologue from me. And last week, I gave a tour of the frightening drug drugs I was given while hospitalized, as well as the drugs I've acquired both legally and illegally since returning home to recover. And hat tip to all of you who have helped me with my acquisitions in the more form, informal market because your drugs have been far more enjoyable and it turns out far less dangerous than the drugs I got at the hospital. And I will have more of my ongoing thoughts on dangerous drugs and how they got that way during our Friday the 13th, May 13th Patreon monologue, specifically one really horrible drug in particular. On Patreon, we also play an old interview that is not available anywhere else except on Patreon. For instance, on the Patreon show, we played uh, the most recent one. We played a 2008 interview with Russian analyst Rain Mullerson, who was on to talk way back again in 2008 uh, to talk about the Russia war with Georgia and the Georgia war with Russia and the West response to both and what it revealed, at least to Rain. And that's what it revealed to Rain was the desire for the West to contain Russia in a way that was very much reminiscent of the Cold War, a containment that guided U.S.-Soviet relations for 40 years and was supposed to end with the fall of the Soviet Union. Despite being recorded in 2008, Rain has a lot to say about Russian relations with the West that provide important context for the issues of our current day and what's taking place in Ukraine. Patreon subscribers also get breaking news on the show before anybody else finds out. We reveal behind-the-scenes information we'd rather not mention, well, to be frank, anywhere else. However, while I've been hospitalized and recuperating, I've not been able to do our regular show or any new Patreon podcast for that matter. That is until this past Friday, May 6th, when we shared breaking news about this year's This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show, This Is Art, and I'll get to that in just a moment. To get you all caught up, on previous episodes of This Is Hell, dating way back to the final weeks of winter, way back at the beginning of March, we announced an upcoming interview discussing the dangers of continued economic growth, the kind of runaway growth that seems to be the singular and suicidal human aspiration at this point in history, leading to our destruction through environmental degradation, pollution, and climate change. Throwing the class war of inequality, neoliberalism, prioritizing profits over people, corporate control and the authoritarianism all of that often causes, plus the never-ending onslaught of propaganda supporting non-stop growth, the kind of growth that shrinks our resources and crushes our humanity, and you basically have the setting for our current nightmare. But before we could get to a guest to discuss that nightmare back in early March, I had a nightmare of my own, and you can hear me describe what landed me in the hospital by going back to our Monday, April 11th show, where I tried to explain exactly what the hell happened with my health, or exact as I could, considering what I'd gone through. I was kind of shaken still at that point. That's our April 11th show, which everyone can find and listen to for free at thisishell.com or on SoundCloud. It's the charming story of an infection that turns into an abscess that causes sepsis, threatening the life of a lovable, disabled radio show host to make his existence a bit more miserable and hellish. It's now been three months since I, or actually a little bit over two months since I took ill, and after a long stint in the hospital, followed by a series of surgical procedures, a stretch at home where I was bedridden and a disturbingly drastic weight loss, I'm now kinda 
feeling well enough to return to the show, I, I think. So I'm going to try and do just that with a new live show featuring a new guest and interview, a show that I will be hosting next Monday, May 16th, at least I hope so. If all goes well, my first full week of shows will then begin the following week, Monday, May 23rd. That's my first show back happening next Monday, May 16th. And if all goes well next Monday, my first full week back begins the following Monday, May 23rd. And that's not even the breaking news we broke on Patreon exclusively for Patreon patrons this last week. After my monologue on drugs and the other evils of hospitalization that I compare to the cruelty of detention and incarceration because of my illness and still ongoing recuperation, we had good breaking news and bad breaking news on the This Is Hell anniversary party. You can only hear that drug-induced and narcotics-fueled monologue on Patreon, but here's the breaking news, both good and bad. First, let's start with the bad breaking news. Due to my ongoing illness and constant recovery, it seems like, we are forced to reschedule our anniversary party yet again. After having the date of the party changed due to the pandemic in 2020, and then again due to the same pandemic in 2021, we just refused to learn our lesson and presumptively scheduled the 2022 party for the date we first aired, which was July 23rd. But as this is hell, we have been, for the third consecutive year, forced by disease and the fragility of our mortality to change when we're hosting our anniversary party. According to my team of doctors, yes, I'm so riddled with disease, I needed a whole team of healthcare professionals to survive. The final surgery to supposedly cure me of my current affliction will be taking place sometime in early July, which will be followed by another hospitalization and more recovery. And now some good breaking news. If my progress continues, as it has so far, which is spectacularly, I should be well enough to celebrate our 26th anniversary at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. I should be able to do that by the final Saturday of summer. That's Saturday, September 17th. Our new date for our anniversary party at Carrie's Lounge will be Saturday, September 17th, with doors opening at Carrie's at 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon. Now, by that time, all signs are currently indicating I will be in good enough shape to enjoy the food, music, and conversation downstairs in the bar and out back in the beer garden, as well as appreciate the art in the This Is Art art show, which happens whenever we can have our anniversary and listener appreciation party. So that's the This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show. This is heart, art or heart. This is art. Now rescheduled for the final Saturday of summer, Saturday, September 17th, with doors opening at Carrie's at 3 in the afternoon and the party going on until, well, until the last person leaves. And I'm certainly doubting that that last person leaving will be me, considering what I will still have been going through likely. That's the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show. This is Art now on Saturday, September 17th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. With food, live music, a raffle, and the art show, this is art. 
As always, we will have a raffle of This Is Hell related prizes donated to us by people like you. And if you have something you would like to donate to This Is Hell as a prize for the raffle, email us with your suggested prize idea at chuckatthisishell.com. That's chuckatthisishell.com. If you are a musician who would like to perform or would like to suggest a musical performer or a band that you would like to hear at the party, again, email us at chuckatthisishell.com with recordings of the music. Keep in mind, we do pay our musical guests, and I have been told we pay rather handsomely. I don't know why we do, we just do. Also, if you are an artist who would like to show your work as part of the This Is Art show, or would like to suggest an artist whose work you appreciate, Email us again at chuck at this is with a sample of your or your work or that of the artist whose work you admire. Again at chuck at this is So not only do we pay musician musicians who perform at the party better than we likely can afford, we also do not have any commission, we don't take any commission from artists who sell their work during the show. Often art galleries, for those of you who don't know, often art galleries will take as much as 60%, if not more, from sales at the shows. If you sell your art during our This Is Art show, you get all 100% of the take. But there is some other news about the art show. So here's the deal. Over the years, This Is Art has opened at our anniversary party. This year, we will be hosting the closing party of This Is Art. During our party on Saturday, September 17th, This Is Art is, you know, going to be, it's going to be a closing that's going to be happening on September 17th. Instead, what's happening this year, the opening is happening during Carrie's Lounge's 50th anniversary party. Happening on the original date of our party, I know this is all very complicated, Saturday, July 23rd. So if you are an artist or would like to suggest an artist, please get a sample of your work or the work of the artist you're suggesting at your earliest convenience. We are also going to have uh, host gallery hours to show the work of all of the artists every weekend between the opening in July through the closing in September. That's the opening of This Is Art taking place Saturday, July 23rd during Carrie's Lounge's 50th anniversary party. And the This Is Art closing happening during the This Is Hell 26th anniversary party on September 17th, the Saturday during the final weekend of summer. So I think I've touched on everything that I'm supposed to be announcing this morning. Let's see. I mentioned how I've been out due to illness for a couple of months, but I'm back hosting new weekly episodes on Patreon. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. I said how next Monday, May 16th, I'm back returning to hosting my first live episode in a couple of months, so stay tuned in throughout this week's show to find out who our guest will be next week during my first show back since taking ill. I explained that if all goes well, my first full week back will begin Monday, May 23rd. That's two weeks from today. And on Saturday, July 23rd, Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from our studio, will be hosting their 50th anniversary party. While up here in the second story art gallery, there will be the opening of the This Is Art Art Show, which brings us to summer's final Saturday, 
Long from now, on September 17th and the new rescheduled date of the This Is Hell 26th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party, as well as the closing party of the art show This Is Art, all of that happening on September 17th. So if you're thinking about traveling to Chicago to join us for the party, that's Saturday, September 17th, is the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and the closing party for the art show, This Is Art. Okay, maybe you've got that all written down by now. I'm not too sure. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming podcast, and Patreon podcast host, Chuck Mertz. At this point in time, I normally would be asking Alex, what is this week's hangover cure? But because I've been so out of it and so ill-prepared for the last couple of weeks, I didn't send you one. Alex and I apologize for that. Sepsis. Sepsis. That is that is a good hangover cure. Just the infect uh, infection throughout your bloodstream that could kill you. That's a good hangover cure. The only one I could find this morning was coconut water with electrolytes, and eh, I think we've done that before. And coconut water is just gross. I find it disturbing and disgusting. Anything else you want to add about uh, before we? Oh yeah, we got a question from Hell. Uh, this week's question from Hell is. What did Chuck miss in the past two months? Ugh. What did Chuck miss in the past two months he'd been laid up? Uh, how about, uh, let's see, what did I miss in the last, uh, mm, a regular bowel movement. How about that? Is that too disgusting? That might for be the- a future hangover <laughs> cure itself. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Alex. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. Glad to see you back in the chair. Yeah, it's very weird. And uh, I'm going to go home now and lay down. Yeah, I'm going to stay here and stay seated. All right, uh, first up, I got you. Uh, I'm going to do one interview now for the people listening live in the radio show because I don't want to smash that one-hour boundary. Uh, but if you're listening on the podcast, we'll have both Bruce Dixon and Glenn Ford. Uh, for right now, because I got Rotten History coming up, uh, it's a doozy. And a couple, I got a piece of Alex news happening at the end of the show. Uh, but right now, let's hear Bruce Dixon. This is hell. It's time we hold our elected officials accountable, especially elected officials who got elected on a resume of civil rights. It's also time we stop saying, not my president, and start doing something about it. Here to tell us what needs to be addressed and what needs to be done, Bruce A. Dixon is managing editor at Black Agenda Report and co-chair of the Georgia Green Party. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Bruce. Hey, uh, thanks for having me, yeah. Always great to have you on the show, uh, Bruce. And you know why 2016 sucked? Because you weren't on our show. That's never going to happen again, I promise. Uh, Bruce posted okay. <laughs> uh, This week, Bruce posted the articles, Is it time to revoke John Lewis's lifetime civil rights hero pass? Mocking, marching, stopping the hate, and dumping Trump are not enough. And who owns the movement, and where are they taking it? Uh, so uh, during an interview last Sunday, Representative John Lewis of Georgia said, I don't see this president-elect as a legitimate president. I think the Russians participated in helping this man get elected, and they helped destroy the candidacy of Hillary Clinton. Before we get into John Lewis's politics, current politics, do you agree that this president is illegitimate and that Russian participation makes this president illegitimate? Uh, I would say he's no more illegitimate than the last one. If we uh, confine ourselves to that issue of whether the Russians had anything to do with it or not, and the you know the evidence is awfully, awfully, awfully thin that uh, the Russians had much to do with it, um, there's a lot that that there's a lot of ways that you could contend that Barack Obama's presidency is illegitimate, that W's president was illegitimate, 
and that many of their predecessors were illegitimate. Um, we've been in constant war now for how many years? Uh, Congress is supposed to declare war, not presidents. Uh, you know, we're torturing people around the world. We're drone bombing people. Uh, we're being lied to every day. Um, there's any number of impeachable offenses and, and just downright dirty, nasty things that uh, should undermine the legitimacy of this government, this system, this president that uh, Trump is uh, likely to do, um, but that uh, the Obama administration has also already done. Um, the Obama administration deported uh, more than 2 million people, more than 2 million people. They separated um, uh, tens of thousands of families, jailed tens of thousands of children. Um, gee, shouldn't that make them illegitimate? I think it should be. I think it should. Um, they're telling us now that, oh, um, oh, Obama came to office right during the foreclosure epidemic, right when the bankers crashed the economy. And uh, his attorney general, who was a white-collar crime specialist by that, we mean that um, his first two attorney generals, uh, well, he only had two, uh, were both specialized in keeping white-collar criminals out of jail. Um, but his attorney generals told us that those banks were too big to fail and too big to jail. So that should make them illegitimate. But what we see with the dump Trump thing right now and with John Lewis's illegitimate thing is that they want to go after Trump's uh, conflicts of interest. And they want to go after this this Russian thing that, in large part, they seem to have made up. And they they want to have a dump Trump message that does not touch all the illegitimate things that uh, their president did. And that's just not a sustainable criticism if we're going to build a movement that's not going to be hijacked by the next Democrat who comes along. We've got to criticize Trump for some of the stuff that he does that Barack Obama endorsed, like the privatization like the privatization of education and like, um, um, yeah, like the privatization of education and like the foreign wars we've got everywhere, like the mass surveillance we've got, like the mass deportation. Those are the things that we should be criticizing Trump for, not this Russian nonsense and not uh, just his conflicts of interest. You write John Lewis's problem with Trump is that the CIA and FBI, which helped assassinate King and cover it up, says that Russia helped elect him, and Lewis believes it. What does Democrats' support for the intelligence community today say to you about the Democratic Party, and what does it say to you about Republicans? Because it wasn't long ago that Republicans said anyone who doubted the CIA on weapons of mass destruction was unpatriotic, and the Democrats were the ones doubting the intelligence community, which they now apparently revere. Yeah, it, what it says is that they're on the same team, and um, that's not the team I want to be on, and that's not the team that most of us should want to be on. Uh, that's certainly not on the team. And and if we're seeing now people who call themselves progressives, and uh, where I come from, progressives uh, just seems to be the brand name, the new brand name for Democrats. They don't want to say they're Democrats anymore. They're now progressives. But if uh, progressives are following the lead of the FBI and the CIA, then shame on them. I agree. You know, uh, many liberals believe that Trump is illegitimate, which makes claims of the end of Hillary like liberalism also illegitimate. In 2020 or even 2024, 
Do you think the Democratic Party will look a lot more like Hillary's politics or Bernie's? Which side will end up winning the 2016 election? Uh, well, the <laughs> wait, in 2020, what will the Democratic uh, Party look like? Well, Bernie is 74 years old right now. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't see a 78-year-old guy running for president. No. I, I just can't see it, you know. Um, the um, but but the people who run the Democratic Party now are the same people who run the Democratic Party for the last generation. I'm one of those folks who was working on trying to hijack the Democratic Party in Chicago during the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s. We ran candidates for every local office up and down the ticket, um, and we tried to build neighborhood organizations and. Some of those neighborhood organizations lasted for a while. Um, or we had Helen Schiller uh, in the city council for 20 years, didn't we? You know? Yeah. So, um, so, so it's not like um, people have never tried to run for local office and to hijack the Democratic Party from below. It's been tried, but the rules have been jiggered and, and, and jaggered and changed so that uh, money rules the Democratic Party. The one percenters rule the Democratic Party. And so uh, I suspect that if the Democratic Party exists, then why wouldn't it exist? Um, it's going to be a party of the one percenters pretty much uh, like it is today. Um, and, and Bernie Sanders um, was, he's, uh, I wrote an article back in May 2015, right after Bernie formally started his campaign, where I, I called the maneuver of the Bernie Sanders maneuver a sheepdog kind of thing. Uh, the sheepdog is a tactic that Democrats use any time that, that there's not a Democratic incumbent in the White House. What they have to have is, of course, they've got a neoliberal corporate candidate, but then they've got, they've, they've got to have another candidate whose job is to draw all the folks who are straying leftward or who might stay home otherwise. Um, in uh, 2004, that candidate was Dennis Kucinich. In 2000 and 1996, that candidate was Al Sharpton. Going further back, it was Jerry Brown, and further back than that, it was Jesse Jackson. And in every case, and, and in this case, it was going to be Bernie Sanders. In every one of those cases, that candidate folds his tent and eventually endorses the corporate nominee, and their job is to keep those people in the party and in the mix so that they're not out there trying to build an alternative uh, uh, campaign a year in advance. By the time the uh, Democratic sheepdog folds his tent in the summer of your election year, there's nothing left but uh, the choice between lesser evils. And so um, it's a typical maneuver, and we could see that Bernie was going to buy into this from the beginning. So I imagine that in 2020, the Democrats will find another sheepdog, um, maybe Cory Booker. I don't know, but Cory Booker is just too corporate. Geez, if he's a sheepdog, Who's going to be the corporate candidate? Uh, I don't know. But but they'll have to have a corporate candidate and they'll have to have a decoy sheepdog, much like they did this time. Well, I'm glad that you uh, brought up Cory Booker, uh, Bruce, because uh, I'm already being told, you know, in 2013, I got emails beginning in, God, I think it was like March or April of 2013. Uh, from people who are bloggers, from people within the Democratic Party, that I had to go out and start supporting Hillary Clinton immediately because she was the only possible way in which the uh, Democratic Party could 
maintain the White House. That's the only way that they could keep the White House, keep the presidency, is we had to support Hillary Clinton. I just got an email like that the other day about Cory Booker. So to you, what's wrong with Cory Booker? Yeah, well, um, Glenn Ford, the guy who um, who who I met, who um, I met Glenn Ford in '02 over the internet, actually, um, when uh, I had a stepdaughter who was going to Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey, and uh, she came home for Christmas break, and she brought uh, some printed material, uh, some articles by Glenn Ford, and the article she brought by Glenn Ford was in 2002, and you can find it. Uh, you can Google Fruit of the Poison Tree by Glenn Ford, and in it he details the early history of Cory Booker, how Cory Booker was uh, picked and cultivated back in the 1980s and 1990s by, uh, by the Walton Family Fund and Outfits, whose job it was to want to privatize public education. They propped up Cory Booker throughout his early career. They funded his uh, run for city council and his run for his first run for mayor uh, in Newark, and his second run for mayor, his finally successful one. So Cory Booker has been a corporate tool from the beginning. If Cory did um, for passing motorists, for instance, what he does for um, uh, school privatizers and big pharma, uh, uh, if he did that for passing motorists on the corner, he'd be Cory Hooker, not Cory Booker. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is, I guess when you do it uh, for the big guys, Figure. Yeah, you're you're just an escort at that point. That's all you are. So uh, here's I, Trump's response on escort doesn't run, escort doesn't rhyme with Booker. Okay, sorry. I was just saying that that's the way that the uh, the you know the establishment would say. Oh no, that's not a uh, hooker. That's just an escort. That's all it is. So here's Trump's response on Twitter directed at Lewis. Congressman John Lewis should spend more time on fixing and helping his district, which is in horrible shape and falling apart. Not to mention crime infested rather than falsely complaining about the election results. All talk, 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 no actions or results. Sad. But there was a Guardian story on Thursday headlined, In Horrible Shape, Visit to John Lewis's District Undermines Trump's Claims. And they have they talk about uh, on a quiet stretch of Georgia Road, a red Ferrari zips by a golf course and past a string of well-appointed brick colonials with ornate driveway pillars, the kind that sometimes features stone lines atop uh, standing guard. That doesn't sound like a horrible neighborhood. So uh, Trump also tweeted uh, Congressman John Lewis should finally focus on the burning and crime infested inner cities of the U.S. I can use all the help I can get. So how bad, how burning, how crime infested is Lewis's district, number one? And number two, has he lost a foot? Does he have a lack of focus on his own constituency? Well, Atlanta is, um, well, you lived in Chicago for the last 20, 25 years, I gather. Um, and they say that Chicago was a notoriously segregated place. I grew up at 50th Street in Drexel, where where the west side of the block is ghetto and the um, uh, east side of the block uh, is the Kenwood neighborhood, where Barack Obama lives right now. You know, so, so you can have uh, really poor and really rich people living within a few feet of each other in Chicago, and you've got the same thing in Atlanta. Um, so there are some really, really well-off places in John Lewis's district, and there are some really, really poor places in John Lewis's district, too. Remember, a congressional district is 800,000 people, so it's not a little bitty place. Right. Uh, and the whole city of Atlanta is only 
450,000. Uh, Metro Atlanta, though, is like 5 million. So, um, you know, but um, if all you've got to do, though, is get into a Twitter war with Big Cheeto to be a hero, then, I mean, that's kind of setting the bar pretty low, isn't it? Very low. <laughs> you know, so, um, I mean, if we worked on it, you and I, we could probably take a fight with Big Cheeto, couldn't we? I'm and hoping. Be heroes too. I'm hoping I mean, so. Uh, think about that. Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, you also talk about how uh, how um, Lewis has this policy of supporting gentrification. How does a policy of gentrification not complement or otherwise promote the civil rights uh, movement and civil rights cause that uh, John Lewis is often attached to? Does gentrification undermine civil rights, and should those who support civil rights oppose gentrification? I'm not going to say he supports it. I'm just going to say he never utters a mumbling word in opposition to it, you know, and if he's supposed to be um, a civil rights leader and, and one of the biggest black politicians around uh, we have down here, why don't we hear his voice? Why don't we hear his voice? Um, we've got uh, back in the 1990s, around the time uh, John Lewis first went to Congress, Andy Young was the mayor in Atlanta. I hadn't, I hadn't arrived here yet. I, I hadn't get here until 2000. But Andy Young demolished entire neighborhoods, entire black neighborhoods, uh, to build the stuff for the Olympics and and raise property values and raise real estate prices so that um, more neighborhoods on the outsides of those folded. And, and those uh, black residents had to go find somewhere else to live. Uh, we didn't hear John Lewis say a word about that, and we haven't. We didn't hear John Lewis say a word when they did the same thing in Atlanta that they did in Chicago, tore down all the high-rise projects, and it didn't matter where those people went to. It did not matter. Nobody tracked them. They're just gone. So we don't really know where they went. Um, uh, John Lewis didn't have a word to say about that either. Um, you know, so, uh, and, and right now we've got, since, since I came to town, one of the uh, uh, things I, I saw when I came here is I read in the paper about this wonderful real estate project that they were having here called the Beltline. And all I had to do was look uh, uh, on the surface of it, and it's, it's, it's basically a big real estate scam, a TIF, a TIF-funded real estate scam. Uh, in Chicago, TIFs are tax increment-funded. Uh, here, down here in Georgia, they're called uh, tax allocation districts. Uh, what a TIF thing is, is you take the property, is, is you draw a line around an area, and then within that area, uh, you're expecting the property taxes to go up in that area, but the, prop, but the rise in property taxes will not go into the general fund that pays for schools and roads and services for everybody. The rise in property taxes in that area is going to be sequestered, and it's going to go for some special purpose, usually um, some special purpose that the 1% decide, not the citizens decide. And uh, in the case of the Beltline, that uh, money is that money goes to uh, that money would have gone to Atlanta's public schools, but that money is going to go instead to facilitate uh, yuppie developments, uh, shopping developments, and residential developments. And uh, it's not going to be paid dollar for dollar uh, because it's really going to be funded by a bond issue, and a bond issue 
is where you borrow from the billionaires instead of taxing them, and then you pay them back two and a half times what you borrowed. So, um, so the Beltline uh, borrowed, I think, two and a half billion dollars uh, of money that should have gone to Atlanta's public schools and put it in the hands of uh, some folks whose job it is to facilitate um, yuppie development and yuppie shopping. And uh, it's had a, um, it's, it's displaced tens and tens of thousands of Atlanta residents, and it's going to do more in the near future. And John Lewis hasn't said a word about the discriminatory impact of that. Um, John Lewis hasn't said a word about the privatization of public education. Um, you know, we, we've got a neoliberal mayor here named Kasim Lee. Um, I'm not going to give you any detail. I'm, I'm not going to bore your audience with details about everything he does. But uh, a couple of years ago, uh, when they were having the Big Ideas Fest um, in uh, Aspen, Colorado, where the elite, you know, kind of meet, uh, I was able to turn on the TV. I was in Chicago for a few days. I turned on the TV and I saw uh, uh, Rahm Emanuel. No, I saw Mayor Bloomberg of New York. And on one side of him was Rahm Emanuel. And on the other side was Kasim uh, Reed, the mayor of Atlanta. And the big idea that they were focusing on that Kasim Reed had was stealing the pensions of Atlanta city workers about how, well, we're going to do this and this so that we don't have to pay the greedy pensions that those workers uh, uh, agreed to 20 years ago. So that's the kind of mayor we have here. And uh, John Lewis hasn't said a word about stealing those pensions. He hasn't said a word about uh, the attempts of successive Atlanta mayors to privatize public transit um, and to privatize schools and, you know, or about gentrification. John Lewis is a statue, a civil rights statue. He can be counted on to uh, offer an opinion about the value of nonviolence, but John Lewis has a U.S. Navy ship named after him. Uh, to be fair, it's not a warship. It doesn't pack missiles and, and cruise missiles and guns. But uh, John Lewis's warship, I mean, John Lewis's fleet replenishment oiler is there to resupply the warships. I would think that if John Lewis was a pacifist, wouldn't he want to decline an honor like that? Also, John Lewis votes for Pentagon budgets. He votes for NSA budgets without a whimper. So, you know, what are we talking to? I mean, what are we talking about when we make this man uh, a civil rights hero for something that he did 52 years ago? What he did 52 years ago, along with 600 other people who walked that bridge, was heroic. But, but the question we ought to ask is, does your hero pass last a whole lifetime? And does it excuse you uh, I mean, when is the point when you have to actually stop boasting, roasting, coasting, and toasting and do something new, even mildly heroic, to kind of renew your credentials? Um, and it's been a long time since John Lewis has been, had, you know, since his credentials have been renewed. During the Bernie Sanders campaign, for instance, John Lewis stood up, um, and when people were demanding uh, free college education, uh, John Lewis was quoted as saying that, no, uh, we don't do that stuff in America. We don't have free health care. We don't have free food. We don't have free housing. We don't have free education. It's un-American. And that's what uh, John Lewis said when he was confronted with uh, the folks who, who were for Bernie Sanders. So uh, this guy, you know, his hero credentials 
should have expired a little while ago. And we should take at face value what he's doing now when we want to decide whether he's a hero or not. You write, uh, let's move on to the protest today and yesterday. You write, stop the hate, hashtag stop the hate, hashtag dump Trump, hashtag be ungovernable, hashtag stop Trump, hashtag not my president. And most of the meme stashes and joke repositories do not scare the Pentagon because they offer no door for people to recognize, let alone question the system, not the personalities it throws up. They do allow the lazy and credulous among us to imagine, as Democrats tell us, that character is identity and Democratic operatives to reinforce that message. So how much do you think anti-Trumpism then distracts activists, protesters, and the opposition from the real problems that Trump's policies may mean, the real problems with policies that, to one degree or another, may or not be supported by Democrats? Yeah, I mean, um, we got to protest Trump. we got to do all that good stuff. Uh, the rain just stopped up, up, up here in Atlanta where I'm at, and um, I'm going to be a, at a couple of meetings uh, uh, today and tomorrow about that and, and throughout the week. But um, we have to focus not just on Trump uh, for the reasons that the Democrats want to focus on him. They want to limit their. They want to focus on Trump because of his conflict of interest. They want to focus on Trump, uh, you know, because of his crotch grabbing, uh, sexual predatory uh, behavior. They want to focus on him, uh, you know, because he wants to deport Muslims. Well, you know what. Um, the Obama administration uh, deported uh, tens of thousands of Muslims itself. I mean, the Obama administration uh, deported two million, uh, uh, two million non-citizens. You know, so uh, what we've got to do is we've got to focus on the policies that uh, Trump and the Democrats have in common. Both Trump and the Democrats want to privatize public education. Both Trump and the Democrats want to put, uh, I mean, one of the first things that Barack Obama uh, did when he came into office was he appointed a commission that was going to try to get to the bottom of what they call the entitlement mess. Um, He was going to make a grand bargain with uh, the Republicans over Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Um, Fortunately for all of us, uh, we got gridlock, and the Republicans just didn't want to talk to him about it. But, you know, what we've got to do is we've got to focus on the bad stuff that both parties have in common. If we don't focus on the stuff that both parties have in common, then we're just focusing on Trump as a replaceable person rather than capitalism as a replaceable system. Bruce, just a couple more questions for you. Uh, you know, um I'd argue that Trump will never be as devastating to this country or the opposition as Ronald Reagan was because Trump will not leave a legacy behind of an opposition party speaking about him as if he was a great president. I mean, even before he was out of office, they were already saying great communicator, great president. And that was the Democrats, as if his policies weren't detrimental just to Democrats, but to the entire country, especially over the long term. We're still within the first 24 hours of a Trump presidency, but are you scared more today for the future of the people living in the good old U.S. of A., or did you have more fear at the beginning of the Reagan presidency? Are you more frightened today, or were you more frightened on January 21st, 1980, 26 years ago, 36 years ago today? 
Uh, we were pretty scared back then, man. <laughs> I mean, Reagan was a scary character. He said once when he was governor of California that uh, he said, let's have a bloodbath now and get it over with. You know, I mean, uh, that was real. Um, I, I guess that now I've got, personally, I've got less reason to be scared uh, because I think we're better organized and sometimes wiser than we were in 1980. I think that, um, you know, we've got a chance to, you know, save this planet for our children and our grandchildren. And uh, we've got some directions and we've got, and, and we're going to come up with some marching orders and people are going to figure out uh, what to do. And uh, they're going to be tackling this from a lot of different directions. So um, I'm looking forward to this. We're going to have some fun with this. And besides which, um, Trump is just the irresistible butt of a lot of jokes. We'll have a little fun with that, too. Uh, like I said, maybe we can get Big Cheeto to do a Twitter war with This Is Hell and Black Agenda Report. We should work on that. We're going to work on that, definitely. We are definitely going to work on that, Bruce. Uh, and I just want to mention real quick, you mentioned an article earlier by Glenn Ford, who, as you know, has been on the show tons of times, uh, about Cory Booker, and I'm sure that our listeners will want to check it out, uh, Fruit of the Poison Tree. One last question for you, Bruce, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. We've been speaking with Bruce A. Dixon. He's managing editor at Black Agenda Report, co-chair of the Georgia Green Party. This week, Bruce posted the articles. Is it time to revoke John Lewis's lifetime civil rights hero pass? Mocking, marching, stopping the hate, and dumping Trump are not enough. And who owns the movement, and where are they taking it? So our question from hell for you, Bruce, is uh, for those who are at protests already or heading down to protests what would you like their signs to say other than dump Trump or not my president? What do you think would be still catchy but far more effective messages to send that don't just single out Trump as the problem and point to the larger policy issues that are embraced by the vast majority of the Republican Party that could be devastating to this country? I'm going to sort of sidestep that and say what I wish they would do is I hope that they pass out real sign-up sheets. I hope that they um, get the actual phone numbers and email addresses and names of the other people who are out here demonstrating with them so that they are not dependent just on social media to call these crowds together, because social media is owned by right-wing billionaires, and they can cut off your access to your Facebook list and your Twitter feed. Um, and if you're not able to call these crowds together on your own, on the phone, or by doing direct email, uh, then all these crowds are being is just a mute backdrop to whoever's speaking or a mute backdrop to whoever's being projected as the leader or a mute backdrop to uh, whoever's doing news commentary on CNN or somewhere. So I hope these people who are out there uh, demonstrating and, and marching and dumping Trump and everything get each other's phone numbers get each other's real physical addresses and get each other's real email addresses so that they can get together and evaluate whether what they're doing is, you know, is doing any good and how they can uh, uh, be out here on the case from now on. 
Uh, that's a great suggestion. I hope that people who are listening who are going to protests uh, take that in mind because, you know, I'm, uh, what I'm always afraid of is when these protest marches happen is that that's the dead end. People go and protest and that's the only thing they do. They don't get involved anymore. And one way that you could get all those people to be involved and to organize those people more and more would be to share contact information so people, as you were saying, can physically contact you so you can't be cut off from uh, social media, as a lot of people are trying to get Mark Zuckerberg to do over at Facebook right now. Bruce, it's always a pleasure to hear your voice. Say hello to Glenn for me. Thanks so much for being back on the show, and Happy New Year, sir. And Happy New Year to you, man. Always great to hear your voice. Take care, my friend. That was the Black Agenda Report's Bruce Dixon in January 2017 talking about the articles mocking, marching, stopping the hate, and dumping Trump are not enough. And is it time to revoke John Lewis's lifetime civil rights hero pass? For the podcast listeners, here's Glenn Ford in 2008. These guys were always right, man. Never fell for it. Wish more of us could say the same. On the line with us right now is Glenn Ford, executive director of the Black Agenda Report. Check out blackagendareport.com. Most recently, his writing includes Obama's center-right presidency, The Die is Cast. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, Chuck. How you doing? Good. It's great to have you back on the show. You know, uh, the last time we had you on was the first show of this year, and I didn't want to have you on until after Barack Obama got elected because I knew that you were just going to ruin it for him, right? <laughs> it's not my doing, man. He's done it to himself, or rather, he's done it to us. Yes, and that's exactly what he's, he's done it to us. I think that's a really uh, important point to make uh, because— uh, you talk about how uh, basically black America was sold a bill of goods. They uh, voted for this image and they weren't listening to the context and the content that Barack Obama was giving to people, to people like you, to critics like you, so you could point out the failures, the shortcomings of Barack Obama. Do you think that, because uh, you mentioned how black America in a sense was duped into this, do you think that black America was any more or less duped than white America or duped than America is in every one of these presidential elections. We always vote for the narrative, the story, the image. We don't vote for the context or the uh, content. Well, of course, of course, black America was more psychologically involved in this con game than any other group. Uh, that's, that's based in, in the history. We're the group with the hundreds of years of pent-up frustrations uh, uh, that uh, Barack Obama was uh, supposed to relieve. Uh, uh, no, uh, we're we're the most mightily afflicted uh, by this, and and it's not that we're in 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 a state of denial. It's really at the level of state of delusion uh, that that folk are 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 still attempting to explain away somehow this Robert Gates appointment or or the resurrection of the bankers from hell. Uh, these as as Barack Obama's real first presidential uh, moves. Uh, how does one rationalize that with the image uh, that people held in their heads? It didn't exist in reality, but held in their heads of Barack Obama. Uh, you can't have both those images at the, at the same time without without deep psychological disturbance. In your article, Obama's center-right presidency, the die is cast, you start by writing, quote, in case there are any lingering doubts, it's official. Barack Obama has earned a well-deserved rating of center-right politician, courtesy of the New York Times. There have been all sorts of takes on what Barack Obama really is, especially in light of his recent nominees for his cabinet, like you were mentioning. Do you think he is a center, center-right center candidate? And if so, 
How did he get away with being labeled as the progressive or, by Republicans, the most liberal candidate? So is is he center-right, and how did he get away with not being labeled center-right during the campaign? You know, I don't I don't like the labels that, that the bourgeois media put on people. They're, they're usually inaccurate, but we live in, in a world that's all suffused with bourgeois definitions, so... You know, if you're going to pick one, you know, use the New York Times at least. Uh, uh, they're they're more civilized than most of the other uh, media's. Uh, we think that that center right uh, works if Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton are center. Well, their mark is all over uh, Obama's administration, and certainly um, uh, Gates is right. And it's difficult to to. Uh, classify what the bankers from hell are, uh, left, right, no, they're, they're antediluvian uh, <laughs> troglodytes um, <laughs> reaching, reaching from the muck and trying to drag us down into, uh, into the slime. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to get into arguments about, about uh, nomenclature, you know, center, right, and all that. Just want to point out that it takes it takes a lot of uh, a lot of right to make the New York Times call you center right. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. You know, uh, a lot of people are complaining about the nominations that uh, the Obama administration is making right now for their cabinet. As you say, bringing the uh, economists from hell back from the uh, Clinton administration last week, uh, not just last week, but over the last, I, I, I would. Say going back to our last interview back in January, we have been making certain critiques of uh, Barack Obama's candidacy and now his uh, election and uh, what looks like uh, is coming his uh, future presidency. And whenever we do have, I mean, you know, our show is an equal opportunity player hater. You know, we try to we uh, criticize each and every person that comes along the way. In the run up in two thousand, we were talking about how Al Gore would make a bad president. We we're talking how Hillary Clinton, how Barack Obama, we. You know, we are equal opportunity critics. But that said, uh, last week I got a lot of emails from disgruntled listeners who were upset about some of the things that were being said on our show. Uh, one guy just sending in an email that just said player hater. Another guy just sending in an email saying, hey, if you're complaining about the uh, Clinton administration and if you want to see a resurgence of FDR kind of new deal, which some people are uh, suggesting, uh, this uh, writer said, uh, first of all, black Americans did best under any president when they uh, were under uh, President Clinton. And under FDR, blacks had no rights. They were being lynched, and the uh, Roosevelt administration wasn't doing anything about it. So don't tell me that FDR, New Deal is great and that Clinton is bad. So how would you react to this? I mean, people are saying, hey, uh, Obama's bringing in all these Clinton people. Why is bringing in Clinton people bad if Clinton was so great for black Americans? Well, we never said Clinton was so great for black Americans. What we've always said at Black Agenda Report is that uh, Bill Clinton opened the door for Ronald Reagan. And uh, regarding economic policy, that is now quite clear that it is the Robert Rubens and the Larry Summerses of the Clinton administration uh, who uh, successfully deregulated the economy to the extent uh, that, that this this meltdown could occur. Uh, so we, 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 we see the, if, 
meltdown was good for black folks, so we can trace that to Clinton. Uh, but we, we, we've never been guilty of, of, of holding up Clinton, the Clinton administration, as some kind of heaven on earth for black folks. We think it was a disaster. Uh, it, was, it was the period in which welfare as we know it uh, was done away with, in which mass incarceration uh, got thrown into the highest gear uh, ever uh, in the United States, mass, incar- mass black incarceration. So, no, Clinton time was not a good time. Uh, but, you know, as this one uh, emailer points out, uh, you know, this is his whole criteria for why black America was so successful under the Clinton administration is that per capita income went up uh, to a greater degree uh, for black Americans than during any other presidential administration. Why isn't that enough to say that the Clinton administration was a success for African Americans? Obviously, people don't make any connection between these bubbles uh, and, and the periods in which they occur. What we saw in the Clinton administration was <clears throat> the dot-com bubble, uh, and uh, that that uh, that up uh, asset values. Well, you know, we're not going to have to get into a long and deep economic uh, discussion. Uh, the prosperity of the Clinton administration, uh, just like the prosperity of certain uh, points in the Bush administration, were based on distortions in the economy they could not last and inevitably would crash. Yeah. So we have to, we have to look at, 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 at these periods uh, uh, that, that people are, are calling uh, eras of prosperity in a different light when it turns out that they were simply the high points of bubbles. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, that would ultimately burst. People want, want to point to the bubble and and the regime uh, under which the bubble burst and, and call that the disaster, uh, but uh, celebrate the period when the bubble was being artificially uh, pumped up and not understand the connection between the two. Right. If you're going to give if you're going to give credit for the numbers that are accrued during a bubble, you also have to take responsibility for the numbers that are accrued during a bubble bursting. On uh, Obama, you're very, you're very happy that you got to borrow all this money from your. Uh, from your uh, your house, uh, whose value was wildly uh, uh, exaggerated because it was part of that bubble. That made you so very, very happy. You went to Vegas a couple of times uh, based upon those uh, uh, those uh, those false values. Uh, but now you want to uh, curse everybody out uh, who was in government at the time that the that your housing values uh, went into the negative. Yeah, they're all part and parcel of the same of the same uh, thing. Uh, on uh, Obama's cabinet nominees, you write Obama's uh, transition is more accurately seen as a continuity of rule by the lords of finance, capital, and their protective screen of warriors and spies. The Obama regime, still incomplete, already reeks of filthy rich thieves and gore-covered war cr- criminals. Obama's national security and economic lineup is an infinity of ugliness, more repulsive than I could have imagined back in the summer of 2003 when Obama's rise to glory was about to begin. The supremely talented actor slash state senator's capacity for 
obfuscation, his refusal to take a firm position on any subject of real controversy, his transparently false denials of fealty to the corporate Democratic Leadership Council, which had publicly claimed him. All this should have marked Obama as bad news for black America, but his was a fatally attractive package like the shiny little cluster bomblets that kids pick up in places like Afghanistan. Here's what I don't get, Glenn. If the powers that be, if you will, were behind Obama so firmly, then why run Hillary Clinton against him? What do we get with Barack Obama that we're not we wouldn't get with Hillary Clinton? What were the bigger question, I guess, is, uh, Glenn, what were we really choosing between with Hillary Clinton and uh, Barack Obama? What were the what was the choice that we were really making? We said from the very beginning that substantively there was no big choice uh, between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. That's why it was such a boring, from an issue stand- standpoint, uh, campaign between those two, because there wasn't a dime's worth of difference between them. Now, we don't, we don't believe in these overarching conspiracies, uh, that there's some kind of very small committee uh, that's going to decide whether it's Hillary or, or whether it's Barack Obama. Uh, it's, it, you know, there, there are very influential people uh, who do have their thumb uh, on, on, on history, uh, and they can make it tend to go their way. But uh, they weren't in, in any uh, 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 absolute agreement that it will be uh, Obama over Hillary. I think that they might have been just as surprised as some of us were uh, that the money went for Obama instead of with Hillary. But it didn't really make much difference uh, in terms of substance, substantive policy. And uh, I think in the end, people figured, well, it's, this is a really new face. Uh, we can get some, uh, some more mileage out of this new and, <clears throat> frankly, much prettier face uh, than out of this uh, tarnished one. And we'll get the same policies. Uh, Glenn, uh, one of our producers, Chris Bigosinski, has a question for you. Chris? Uh, Glenn, uh, there's been some uh, signals that Barack Obama may implement uh, approximately half trillion to uh, $1 trillion uh, jobs and infrastructure uh, program once he takes office. Uh, some would argue that his support of the uh, Republic window and door uh, factory workers is an additional sign of this. Do you think that Barack Obama will follow through on this policy that would make you know liberals all over America happy of implementing a large jobs and infrastructure program? Or do you think this is just blowing smoke? Oh, there's going, there's, there are going to be massive federal expenditures. Uh, there's going to be money thrown, <clears throat> thrown <clears throat> at this. But people aren't asking the right questions. The real question is, uh, will, will this, this recovery program, this injection uh, of money, uh, w- will it go straight uh, into the economy through federal uh, mechanisms, or are we going to have these banks and others uh, as the middlemen so they can rake off their 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 percent? That, that'll be the, uh, the key thing to look for. So when, when, when we see the contours of this, of this recovery plan, uh, the first thing to look at is, is there going to be a middleman here? Or are we going to have uh, uh, the creation of actual, of actual new federal, federal uh, recovery mechanisms, or are they going to outsource it uh, to these same bankers from hell? 
You know, uh, there has been some writing, and I know that you've seen it by another guy who's been on our get, uh, been on our show in the past, Tim Wise. And uh, what he's been writing has been pretty controversial. He's been talking about how people need to basically jump on the hope bandwagon, the change bandwagon of Barack Obama, and they shouldn't be uh, already so incredibly uh, critical and even to the point of being nitpicky about the incoming uh, Obama administration. Do you think we simply need to jump on the bandwagon? wagon before he gets into office, because if we start nitpicking now, we're going to undermine the Obama uh, presidency. Two years from now, we're going to see a new contract with America. All of a sudden, we're going to see a uh, Republican takeover. Four years from now, he might even be challenged as president of the United States, because this is another group of emails that I'm getting, that we shouldn't be so critical already of the Obama presidency, even uh, though these nominations are being made and people could make uh, conclusions drawn from those nominations. That's absolute nonsense. Nitpicking? Look, we, the critics... We didn't endorse the bailout. We didn't throw uh, our bully, bully, bully pulpit uh, in, uh, uh, in favor of, of, of the most massive theft or giveaway uh, that the country has ever seen. We didn't do that, and that's not nitpicking. Uh, putting a, a war criminal, uh, Robert Gates, uh, a, a person whose reputation as an imperialist, warmongering uh, lowlife, uh, goes back to Iran-Contra, uh, who, who recommended uh, to Ronald Reagan that Nicaraguan ports uh, be bombed and mined, which they then were. Uh, we didn't, the, the, criticizing that, that kind of appointment uh, in the defense portfolio is not nitpicking. Uh, the, actually, Tim Wise, and I'm so surprised at, at him, uh, is, is, is belittling his own life's work. He's saying that peace is nitpicking, uh, that not handing the country over to uh, the speculators is nitpicking. You know, the, the, the general attitude here is, and this is especially prominent in, in black America, is that what we have to do is protect Obama rather than protect ourselves from Obama. Obama is going to be the president. Obama is the person who can do us damage. Obama is already doing us damage with his appointments. We need protection from him. But the uh, Mr. Weiss and, and, and his ilk uh, are busy uh, 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 trying to protect Obama against us. That doesn't make sense. Uh, Glenn, just a couple more questions for you. Uh, you see the nominations of cabinet seats as, quote, awarding his administration's economic and imperial uh, military portfolios to plundering investment bankers and their servants, Robert Rubin's uh, derivative addicted sidekicks, and endless uh, warriors, Iran-Contra, super spook, and master of intrigue, Robert Gates. Secretary of State designate Hillary Clinton is a socialist pacifist compared to the men who will, uh, who will run by far the most important capital intensive of Obama's departments. In this scariest chapter of world history to date, the secretaries of war and treasury will be the dominant players in determining the nation's economic and military place on the planet. That's where the bulk of the national wealth will be uh, diverted. Everyone else will scramble for crumbs. 
But are the crumbs enough to scramble for in that, you know, isn't that how all these kind of things boil down? Every one of the presidential administrations, they don't really vary that much from foreign policy to foreign policy, from administration to administration. We did see a a big jump in the last one because of preemptive strikes and that new Bush doctrine of preemptive strikes. But that said, uh, as Stephen Kinzer argues in his book Overthrow, you know, it seems that we've been on one constant path of foreign policy, of regime change, of overthrowing uh, other countries that we, whether they're democratically elected or not, are not supportive and are not friendly for the United States. So this seems to be the way that it's always gone, that it always will go. Are the crumbs, the smaller distractions, uh, whether it's the Free uh, Employment Choice Act or whatever, are those enough for us to fight over a significant enough portion of the policy debate for us as American citizens to fight over? First of all, uh, he's backing away from even those little crumbs. Uh, Rahm Emanuel uh, has, has indicated uh, that he's not sure that the administration uh, is going to uh, push, push strenuously uh, early on for the, uh, for, the, uh, for the Choice Act, the check, uh, Card Check Act, uh, the Pro-Union uh, Act. And, and we see that uh, across the board, that uh, no, uh, no, nothing is written in stone with this administration, even in terms of these, these secondary uh, things that we would like to happen. Uh, but no, I disagree in terms of uh, 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 to any idea uh, that 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 occurrences of of great and different import are not happening right now. Uh, this the reason the Treasury, which used to be one of the minor portfolios, uh, is now the big the big one uh, is is because never before uh, as as a government said we're just going to make money and give it away at, at will. Uh, we're not going to follow any of the rules that uh, people uh, used to say were so important uh, in uh, with with in this capitalist framework. We're just going to uh, make all the money that our friends uh, might have some use for. That's never happened before. We've never uh, in, in the last several months uh, we have, in one way or the other, made available uh, about eight trillion dollars to the banks. Now, that's never happened without any checks and balances, by the way, before in history. And that's what makes Treasury uh, such an important uh, uh, portfolio. Uh, So, no, there are different things happening, things that never happened before. You know, history sometimes does yield up actual change, but it's not the kind of change that Barack Obama was promising us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, One last question for you, Glenn. We've been speaking with Glenn Ford, Executive Director of the Black Agenda Report. Check out their website at blackagendareport.com. His most recent writing includes Obama's center-right presidency, The Die is Cast. One last question for you, Glenn, and as always, it's our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. You write that, uh, quote, Obama has done everything humanly possible to assure the lords of capital that he is at their service. His appointments prove it. But some African-Americans, far too many, still labor under the illusion that a solemn pact exists between themselves and Obama. It is a belief based on blind faith and things unseen, or an imagined exchange of winks. Even say that a prominent and highly intelligent lifelong New York activist assures audiences that Barack Obama is winking at black folks. And this sounds 
Sarah Palinish to me. Is he is Barack Obama in your opinion? Is he as much of a phony personality as she is? You know, because that's the way that she was being told to everybody in the United States that she was this big phony personality. Do you think that Barack Obama is just better at being a phony personality than Sarah Palin? That's what I was about to say. Just as phony, much more talented at it. So you're saying then that Barack Obama is the Sarah Palin of black politics? He's just not funny. <laughs> like she is. <laughs> oh, he's quite convincing. He has to do he has to do tremendous wrong before people see him correctly. Uh, whereas Palin, you could see her. Uh, well, you could see her just like she could see Russia. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, real quick, some Alex news here before Rotten History. This is my last show for a while, at least. I got economic anxieties, my friend. It is crazy out here. Everything costs money. I walked past a $5 cauliflower at H Mart last week. Cauliflower, after everything I did to support your career over the decades, you're going to do this to me. I got bills piling up these days, and I am sweating just walking past the mailbox. So I got to spend more time making more money for my family, and I got to do that, like, uh, real soon. Uh, I'll still be here in the This Is Hell Extended universe somewhere, working behind the scenes on my own schedule, getting the archives public and searchable for everyone. Uh, Look for more news about that next week. I know the show is in great hands with Lindsay, Sebastian, Dan, and Richard. I'm looking forward to hearing more from them as we go forward. I'm going to miss working on this show a bunch. It's been a decade on the other side of the glass from Chuck. Thank you, personally, for listening to the show, everyone who listens to the show. Thanks to all the guests that I put on hold over the years, uh, the producers, the board ops, the web people that kept this show going. Uh, But most of all, I want to thank Chuck. He is the hardest working man in no business. Honestly, I've never seen someone so committed to their vision, keeping at it day after day, week after week. 26 years. It's Herculean. It's inspiring. And I'm glad there are people like Chuck in this world. There have been a hundred producers before me. There will be a hundred producers after me. But as one of my favorite creeps, Marky Smith said, if it's me and your granny on the bongos, it's the fall. Thanks for letting me drum along, Chuck. All right, Rotten History. Rotten History for the week of Monday, May 9th, 2022. On May 12th, 1957, that was 65 years ago this Thursday, at the Mila Milia, one of the most popular events on the European auto racing circuit. The Milia Milia was a race of a thousand miles from the northern Italian city of Brescia, along, south along the Adriatic coast, across the peninsula to Rome, and the north again. Now, unlike the Formula One Grand Prix, on which drivers ran repeated laps over courses between 3 and 15 miles, the Mila Milia was a single huge lap through cities, towns, and countryside, with so many curves and corners that no driver, regardless of practice, could possibly memorize them all. Uh-oh. This made the race uniquely dangerous. <laughs> Among the contenders in 1957 was a 28-year-old Spanish playboy aristocrat, uh-oh, known as the Marquis Alfonso de Portago. Descended from a long line of Spanish, Spanish adventurers, war heroes, and politicians, Portago had become a media celebrity in Europe at the age of 17 when, to win a $500 bet, he flew an airplane under the Tower Bridge in London. Before returning to auto racing, he'd also led the first ever Spanish bobsled team to a fourth place finish in the 1956 Winter Olympics. In 
In Formula One, Portaga was seen as a driver who compensated in audacity and natural talent for what he lacked in experience. Uh-oh. Despite winning a number of Grand Prix races, he had wanted to skip the Mille Miglia, but had been pressured to compete by his sponsor, Ferrari. So, with a navigator riding shotgun, Portago maneuvered his car to a position near the front of the pack. About 30 miles short of the finish line, in the town of Cavriana, he saw in the crowd of spectators the film actress Linda Christian, with whom he had been having an illicit affair despite already being married to one woman and dating another. In a moment captured by the paparazzi, Portago screeched to a stop, and Christian ran over to the car to kiss him before he roared away again. Just minutes later, running 150 miles an hour in third place on a straightaway, Portago blew a tire, lost control, and went into the ditch. He and his navigator were both killed, along with nine roadside spectators, including five children. A photograph of Linda Christian kissing Portago became known in European media as the kiss of death, and a public outcry resulted in the end of the Mila Milia race, though it was revived in later years as a re relatively sedate road rally for vintage cars driving at legal speeds. That's Rotten History for this week. Rotten History is written by Ronaldo Magaldi. Thanks, Ronaldo. More archive eps all week from Dan, Sebastian, and Lindsay. Chuck is back next Monday with an all-new interview. Uh, if that works out, we're feeling better. Then the next week, we are back to the old schedule. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. I'm going to miss you. Take care of each other. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.